That's that's a different language. I know, but that's five minutes. Yeah, you can can hear the etymological connection between Hamsa and Hamish. Hamish, Hamish Nakot. Should I'm in in inside joke for seven people? Hi, Vanessa. Hey, Adam. Welcome to Uncertain Things. Thank you kindly. Do you want to introduce our guest today? Before we get into our belabored introduction. Okay, we'll get to the heart of it today. Straight to the meat, no time for the chaff. Uh, today we have Jamie Kerchick, writer extraordinaire for Tablet. He also writes for The Atlantic from time to time. He's also on, he does the podcast circuit on many a podcast, Mr. Kerchick. He's also an author. He mm-hmm. wrote The End of Europe, which I read years ago and loved. And we actually talk about that book not in the main interview, but if you are a paying member, you get a little bonus where Jamie and Vanessa and I talk about his thesis about the rise of populism in Europe. And I ask him to revise it. How, does, how do we think today about Viktor Orban, about populism in the UK, in France, in Italy? If you care about all that, as I believe some of our listeners do, consider becoming um, a member. Yeah. It's not that much. What is it, like $5 a month or something? It is, and it, it allows us to do what we do and potentially, as more people subscribe, uh, to do even more. But this is not what we talked about. His no. more recent work, The Secret City, is about the history of gay culture, closeted gay culture, primarily in D.C., Right. The book starts in the kind of Cold War era, um, a little bit before, I guess, with World War II. Um, And it was a very interesting historical jaunt for me. I'm not super familiar with gay history in general. The fact that D.C. is the nation's capital and so much of what happened there would set course of events for the rest of the country uh, was really, really interesting. For example, it was worse to be gay, openly gay than to be openly communist. You could kind of come back from being a communist and you'd think that that was like the worst you could be, but no. Um, and he, he talks about how people in D.C. Uh, initiate those civil rights movements that would event, like lay some of the seeds for eventually where gays and lesbians got in this country, which is a in relatively short order. Uh equality and a remarkable uh, cultural acceptance. Yeah, I mean, one of the more radical changes in public perceptions within a short period of time. Yeah, very short period of time. Then we get to his more recent article for Liberty's Journal from queer to gay to queer. And then in in a similar, a, a shortened version of it in The Atlantic, it's about where the gay movement is today which is where things become more, I guess, spicy. Right, because for him, it's it's no longer a gay movement, actually. It has become the queer movement, and that has come with, for, from his perspective, uh, significant drawbacks. As somebody who's, who's gay himself, he feels very strongly about what the conversation has turned into in the past, say, 10 years from focusing on civil liberties to more amorphous pushback against 
a collective notion of what's normal and acceptable. Mm-hmm. And you and I and Jamie all fall on kind of different spots in how we feel about that presupposition. Yes. And that's one of the things that really excited me in this conversation, because I think we all come from a very clear stance in support of embracing the humanity in everyone from this old liberal view that, Mm -hmm. you know, People are good and cool and should be whatever the fuck they want to be. And not have to be discriminated for. Mm -hmm. We all find repugnant everything that's happening today on the right, really just re-embracing old anti-gay discriminatory practices under the guise of fighting the woke, the Mm -hmm. woke monster. Right. Uh, So... uh, just because this is the time we live in here is the disclaimer that this right. is all repugnant and and not what the conversation is about because because we don't need to bother with such asininity. But where it is interesting is the nuances between where Vanessa, Jamie, and I are on this conversation. So to kind of catch up where we each are, I my thinking about all all this all matters human rights is from the perspective of emancipation. And emancipation takes many forms, but my primary concern, and as old listeners may remember, comes from my experience growing up in Jerusalem, is based on an experience of what it's like to be in a place that really does get in your business about what you believe, what your sexual orientation is. Who you love. Who you are. That's where I'm radical. In any space where I feel that people want to get in your business, I get defensive. I get provocatively defensive. And I think you can tell that that some of my conversations with Vanessa and our background arguments in the podcast are on the lines of whether the left at certain points in the past 10 years has decided to be the party of getting in people's business. And problem starts when a movement stops focusing on emancipating its own people, creating the space for people to freely be who they are, and instead focusing on policing the behavior of others. That's not part of what I consider liberation, right? (laughs) In some corners, the conversations around sexuality have veered from focusing on liberation and where civil rights are being infringed, fighting that, and instead focusing on being more petty with people who disagree with you or ensuring that the conversation is conducted under this correct language, which is insanity. Hmm. And I, on the other hand, I think I'm much more sympathetic to the queer movement. Um, I think because I still feel like it's hard to be non-straight 
in this day and age, even though it's so much more accepted than it ever was before. I feel like, I mean, I myself have hangups, personal hangups around expressing any kind of deviation from mainstream sexuality. Um, I mean, I'm not a particularly demonstrative person when it comes to like wearing my identities on my sleeve anyway, but even still, I personally like that because of this kind of change in our cultural conversation and this awareness of so many different sexual orientations and gender identities that for me, it actually does feel somewhat like uh, some, there is some liberation there because there's a, a permissiveness to explore and understand the kind of realm of identities. And I feel like often when we have this conversation it, the the people that we tend to talk to tend to say like this proliferation of identities is ridiculous. It is like it's not based in biological fact. It's it becomes a way of kind of dividing us rather than uniting us. And I understand all of those arguments, but uh, I I feel like we are moving through an evolution somehow. And at some point, we're going to arrive at a place that feels there's going to be legitimate ways to describe our sexual orientations and gender identities in ways that aren't going to necessarily put us into boxes that separate ourselves. I really, I don't know. For some reason, I feel like that. And I, I think that puts me at odds with a lot of more conservative thinkers. And I think there is room for me to, to bend and flex and learn, but this is where I'm at right now. Interestingly, I, we had this conversation or versions of it in preparing for Jamie and after it. And I, I, I'm still hearing where you're coming from and learning a lot from it through your perspective because of, I guess, our very different starting point, thinking about our own sexuality or thinking about how we relate to the world or our different ways of expressing ourselves publicly, right? Mm -hmm. Sexually or otherwise. Mm -hmm. But the point that I, I still can't bring myself to agree with you is that this current movement, I hate using the word movement all the time, it feels dull, but whatever this is, wherever the conversation is right now, I don't feel like it's taking us away from boxes. It's just putting mm -hmm. us in smaller ones. Mm -hmm. Actually, if you remember, listeners, in our conversation with Eli Lake, I was defending the term queer because I liked having a category that includes the spectrum and allows people to discover themselves within it. I don't kind know. Kind of like if the catch-all phrase. And I, I agree with you on that score. I think it's useful to have a catch-all phrase. And this is a point of contention between me and Jamie where we might agree that this is not necessarily a civil rights issue to the extent that uh, gay liberation or whatever you want to call it has been over the past, you know, a hundred years or arguably since European enlightenment. But it's certainly an issue, I think, important to me and, and I see its value in the context of a, talking to people like you, Vanessa, but also growing up in, in my own experience, as I mentioned, Jerusalem, I saw how people needed that space to find themselves. And sometimes that matters as much as giving the legal rights for people to be who they are. Also just having the available vocabulary for them to think for themselves and find themselves. However, I don't think that's where the broader conversation is taking us. The broader conversation is taking you to fill up a corporate form that has 17 categories and you need to pick from that. Yeah. That, okay, okay. We'll leave the rest for the conversation with Jamie. I think this is enough set up. This is a, this is a, a little bit of a teaser of the kind of thing we get to in the second half of the conversation. So. Right. And also kind of a sample of 
our normal <laughs> chats. This is behind the scenes, which we do occasionally put on into the bonus feed again for paying subscribers. So if that's Correct. the kind of thing you're into, Adam and my brains at, at work and conversation behind the scenes, uh, you should you should subscribe to the paid feed. And if it isn't, we always make sure to put in the show notes the uh, start of the actual interview so you can actually skip all our bullshit. <laughs> That's true. I do take time doing that with the timestamps. She does. Um, and reminder that for the end of Europe, if you want to listen to that, to, yeah, become a paid subscriber. Uh, we are in certain.substack.com. Oh, yes. If you enjoy our conversation, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That helps us to grow. And uh, we... We love all of you, even if you decide to to not. That's okay. You're you're still important in our hearts. We care for friends and enemies. And with that, Jamie Kerchuk. You can already see where our disagreements are, but let's get to it. So, Jamie, yeah. thank you so much for joining us. Um, now, henceforth, everything is on the record and <laughs> <laughs> irrevocably. No, obviously, if you say something awful, uh, we can take it out. So, um, or just too good. <laughs> it's just too good for the public yeah, to right. handle. <laughs> so, Vanessa, do you want to start? Yeah, Jamie, I'd love to start with Secret City because I think it's I think it's important to have a grounding in history. I, I mean, we're going to spend a lot of the bulk of this conversation talking about where we are now, but I think it's um, it's it's helpful to have a grounding of how how far we've come and and how far we've potentially strayed. We'll see. Um, but would you mind giving us like a story from you, the book that for you exemplifies exactly how reviled gay people were in America? Because I think it's easy to forget now that there is so much acceptance. Um, and I'm not not to say that, you know, homophobia doesn't exist anymore, but there is such a sense of uh, gay culture being accepted today. And it wasn't very long ago that it wasn't and wasn't just not accepted. It was anathema, right? Yeah. So Secret City is a narrative history of what I call the specter of homosexuality that casts a shadow over Washington really from the New Deal, beginning of World War II until the end of the Cold War. Um, and the reason why that period is so important is because prior to World War II, homosexuality was considered uh, a sin, obviously, in the Judeo-Christian religion, which was very dominant in America at that point in time. It was a mental disorder, and uh, homosexuals could be institutionalized in mental hospitals and chemically castrated and lobotomized and basically subjected to medical torture, uh, frankly. Uh, and it was also a crime. Uh, homosexual sex was a crime. And what it also becomes around the time of World War II is it becomes a national security threat. Uh, and the reason for this is that America is becoming a global superpower and needs to manage and protect national security secrets. And the fear is that gay people, because they harbor this deep, dark, terrible secret, will do anything to protect it, including God forbid, turn over confidential government secrets to hostile foreign powers. Yeah. And I, I will pause you just there for one second, because that was very shocking, I think, to me. This idea of blackmail being one of the primary uh, explanations for why, you know, homosexuals can't be in, in the government because they will all be so easily uh, manipulated because they have this secret life. And I, I, I don't know, it just seems such a bizarre argument. Uh, and yet, from reading your book, this was common wisdom. This is what everyone 
accepted. Everyone, as- including including liberals and progressives. And one of the things that actually comes through in the book is that um, it was often liberals and progressives who would weaponize accusations of homosexuality um, against other people. And homosexuality, you know, gay rights we associate with progressives and the left. That doesn't really begin to happen until the 1970s, the late 1970s, after Stonewall and gay liberation. Um, it becomes more of a kind of partisan political issue. But prior to that, you know, the homosexual had no friends. And I mean, there's one story I can tell to... to, to I, I mean, before you go to the yeah. story, I mean, just for context, like, I mean, when we're talking progressives in, in early 20th century, we are talking about the the parents of American eugenics, right? So it's not it's not that surprising that they weren't... Well, I mean, people who were, say, pro-civil rights at the time, right? Pro-civil oh, rights for oh. African-American, you know, Democrats, liberals, progressives... Um, in the 1940s, 1950s, which is when the book really begins, um, those folks were no more, you know, friendly to the gay cause such as it existed, because it didn't really exist, by the way, until the 1960s, um, than anyone else. And so there's one story that I can tell to kind of illustrate this, but uh, really the first gay activist of, of consequence in the United States was a man named Frank Kameny, who was a Harvard-trained PhD astronomer. And he was working for the Army Map Service, which is the predecessor to the Geospatial Intelligence Agency. And in December 1957, so just two months after Sputnik is launched by the Soviets, we're at the height of the space race. He's working at an observatory in Hawaii, and he's summoned back to Washington by the Office of Personnel Management. or sorry, by the Civil Service Commission, which is the predecessor to the Office of Personnel Management. Basically, the government bureaucracy that manages the entire federal workforce they have evidence that he was arrested on a homosexual offense in San Francisco and they fire him on the spot, right? So that shows you at the height of the space race, what is the federal government doing? They'd rather fire a homosexual who's Harvard trained PhD who's working for the military wing of the space program, right? They'd rather fire that guy than use his talents in the war against communism. And Frank, what makes him a remarkable figure is he becomes the first person, the first gay person who's treated this way to decide to fight it, right? So thousands of people, gay, lesbian, people who were just assumed or accused of being gay and lesbian had been fired from the federal government in the years leading up to this because there was a executive order signed by President Eisenhower in 1953 that kicked off what's known as the Lavender Scare, which accompanied the Red Scare. Um, thousands of people have been fired, lost their jobs. And Frank becomes the first one to say, you know what, I've had enough of this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fight it. He can't even get the ACLU to take up his case, right? So the ACLU is taking the cases of communists, of people accused of being communists, right? But they will not take the case of a homosexual. So one of the arguments I make in the book is that actually being gay was a more dangerous um, trait, a more dangerous identity in Washington than being a communist. And that's one illustration of it. You know, a communist could come out, so to speak, and denounce communism and become an ex-communist um, and in fact, some of the leaders of the conservative movement in America were such people, Whitaker Chambers being the most known example of this. But you know what? Whitaker Chambers was also a closeted homosexual, and he did not did not something that he could talk about. He had to confess that in secret to the FBI, right? So a homosexual could not come out and you know become an ex-gay, so to speak. Um, they had to hide that. Once you were marked as a homosexual, your career was over. And do we know from the ACLU's perspective, was it this is like too hot or controversial? We don't, we're not going to win it. Or was it because they had a moral stance against it? It was more that they bought into this argument, which, by the way, a lot 
on its face made a certain sense. You, you, you could even come at this from a progressive, enlightened standpoint and say, well, we might not like the fact that homosexuals are considered these deviants and whatnot, but that's just the way our, that's just where American society is at this point in time. And as long as that's the reality, then we can't have these people in the government. Um, that was kind of the position the ACLU took. I mean, it wasn't as enlightened as that, but it was basically, yes, homosexuals are a security risk because they are vulnerable to blackmail. And the fact is, is that I write in the book, is that there was actually not a single proven case of a gay person who committed espionage, treason, under inducement of blackmail. Uh, there were a number of gay people who, who, who turned over uh, you know, secrets on low level, but it was not because they were gay. They did it for money or for some you know, ideological purpose. But the Defense Department actually did a study of this in the early 90s during the gays and the military debate. Um, they studied about 120 cases of Americans convicted of espionage. I believe only six of them were homosexual, not a single one of them did it because of blackmail, right? So, so the entire basis for this purge and this, and this argument that gay people could not serve in the federal government um, was without any evidence whatsoever. Okay, so thinking about the prejudice, I was reading uh, or revisiting recently the uh, the rise and fall of the Third Reich by uh, William Shire, and there was just a paragraph that was yeah. so funny to me in it because uh, because I did uh, first time I read it, I was in high school and I was uh, clearly not catching it. He's talking about uh, the early Nazi party and he's describing how low grade it was compared to the other the proper German political institutions. And he is describing that the people that attached to Hitler were, were all um, outcasts, criminals, thieves and homosexuals. Yes. And they're just talking past. Like, that was an assumption. And this is uh, somebody who became, um, I think, in, in terms of American media, a, a, a very prominent um, I, I would say like or old school liberal by all mm. other means, including in the book itself. But that was just obviously this this stigma attaches. Yeah, I, I cite that Shire quote in my book, and there's actually a, a section in the book about the association of homosexuality with Nazism um, mm-hmm. in the years leading up to World War II. And like most stereotypes, there's a grain of truth to it, right? Which is in the sense that one of the Nazi early Nazi leaders was a homosexual, Ernst Röhm, who was the leader of the SA, which was basically Hitler's private, you know, paramilitary army. And he was a rather open homosexual, and Hitler was willing to tolerate it for years yeah. um, until about a year into his um, leadership of Germany, he commits the Night of the Long Knives, right, which was when he basically takes out, he orders the execution. Yeah, uh, nineteen thirty-four, the execution of Rome and his top lieutenants because he saw them as a threat to his power because they were sort of an independent force outside the party. After the Night of the Long Knives, that's when he sort of trots out this argument that they were it was a hotbed of moral depravity and homosexuality. And that sort of plays into this narrative overseas in the United States that, oh, well, maybe Hitler's surrounded by these homosexuals. Um, the first outing in American politics that I have a chapter on was of a Massachusetts senator named David Walsh who was accused by the New York Post, a liberal newspaper at the time, as hard as that might be to believe today, uh, he was accused of frequenting a male brothel in Brooklyn near the Navy Yard uh, that was populated with Nazi spies. Um, and this sort of all kind of made a sort of sense. It made salacious sense because because the depravity of Nazis was associated with homosexuality or because well, homosexuality was just obviously... Uh, uh, a magnet for everything that is wrong. 
Yes, that homosexuality was synonymous with evil, right? And so then just a couple years later, we get the Cold War and McCarthyism and the Lavender Scare, and then all of a sudden, homosexuality is now associated with communism. And no one sees the inconsistency here. Um, right. And I think that's a, that's a trend. It's not just an American tradition. I think we, as human beings, we like to associate our enemies, whether political or tribal or religious, with, with sexual depravity. I mean, look, Jews were were identified as being sexually depraved by the Nazis. Um, they would corrupt German women. Um, and we've done this in America. I mean, what is QAnon, right? QAnon is, is, is accusing um, the liberal elites of the most depraved sexual acts possible, right? Which is, which is sex with children. So this is, a, this is a running theme through history. And, you know, up until recently... And the whole history of... of- White white virgins being raped by yes black, black men slaves. yeah so homosexuality was kind of coded this way in the 20th century and it's interesting I mean during World War II there the OSS which was the predecessor to the CIA the Office of Strategic Services they commissioned two very long you know book length psychological studies of Adolf Hitler that were conducted by Harvard trained psychologists and both of them at length. Um, speculated and sort of theorized uh, about Hitler being a homosexual, a repressed homosexual, uh, that the stabbed in the back theory, right, the Dolchschlossgelände, that the that the German people been stabbed <laughs> in the back, that there was a kind of homosexual component to this, right, of sort of a, a fear of being sodomized or perhaps a sick pleasure in being sodomized, taken taken from behind. Um, they talk about that Hitler was always surrounding himself with these handsome blonde men. Um, and so these are government reports. You know, this, the, 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 this is not just idle those speculation. Shorts. Yeah, there is a sort of appeal. I mean, if you look at some kind of gay, you know, more modern gay uh, leather S&M fetish communities, there, there is a kind of fascistic aesthetic to that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Susan Sontag has a famous essay in the New York Review of Books sometime in the 70s called Fascinating Fascism, um, yeah, which is yeah. about, which is about sort of the, se- the sexual appeal of fascism and, and whatnot. So th- again, there's, there's hints of this, um, but it gets really politicized and it's a very harmful association, right? To have homosexuality associated with whatever happens to be the enemy or the fear du jour in American society at that time. I wonder if you have a working theory, even if it's just a half-baked hot take, that as to why or where it comes from, because I I see the the obsession with sexual difference to be more akin to maybe something like anti-Semitism than it is to uh, a lot of other ethnic bigotries because of how overloaded it is, where it could mean anything, where usually when you have ethnic bigotries and, and, and traditional racism, the story behind it is very simple. I just think that you are uh, culturally, societally, uh, civilizationally less developed than me or in a misfit to my culture, and therefore I disdain you. Where in anti-Semitism, you have so many layers uh, from, from the religious to the sociological to the money question to the... Uh, I, I, to the ethnic and the, the, the genetic, there, it keeps being loaded with more reason and causes as to why people are uncomfortable with, with the eternal Jew. So why are people un- uncomfortable with the eternal gay? 
1951, there was an essay published in Human Events magazine, which was an early conservative American magazine. And it was called The Hominturn. And it was about the homosexual international, the Hominturn, like the common turn, the communist international. And it warned of a secret international fraternity, a kind of secret international masonhood, you know, masonry um, that was undermining national governments in every country. It was composed of people who, whose loyalty was to each other, to their tribe of fellow homosexuals and not to the countries in which they lived. Does that sound familiar? Um, so there's a lot of similarities actually between this 20th century homophobia and anti-Semitism. It's conspiratorial. Um, homosexuals like Jews are, a, you know, for lack of a better term, a diasporic people. They're everywhere. They're in every social strata. They're in every country. They speak, you know, every language, right? They're, they're dispersed across the world. Um, they were said to be, like this article alleged, you know, loyal to one another, to their own kind, not to the nations in which they lived. Um, they were seen as crafty people, intelligent, cunning. They could hide, by the way, right? They were able to disguise themselves. Um, so there's a lot of similarities between this form right. of, of homophobia and the kind of conspiratorial anti-Semitism. And it's interesting, too, because one thing I learned from reading the book was that uh, the progenitor to the CIA, as you mentioned, the OSS versus the FBI, there were actually gay people mm -hmm. working in the OSS, but it also had more, it had a reputation because it was focused internationally and it kind of uh, drew more, quote unquote, like elite yeah. kind of Eastern seaboard types who could speak many languages and go, go abroad and have like little madcap adventures or whatever. It got this bad reputation, especially, especially with the FBI, of being these kind of effete, gay, uh, crafty, and less American government agency, which kind of fed into their uh, kind of rivalry with I'm so other. sad that listeners don't get to see your body language while you were describing this. <laughs> a lot of gestures. Yeah, yeah no, th there's, a, there's a class element to this, right? Which is that, you know, working class people work with their hands and they're tough. They're masculine. Um, Upper class people mm. don't do that. They don't work with their hands. Yeah. They're a fet. They have time for leisure. And homosexuality was seen as sort of a bourgeois um, vice that you know rich pe rich idle people with nothing mm. to do would resort to. Um, and this is very much associated, you know, in Britain. Um, it was actually the Tory Party, which to this day the Tory Party is more. There's actually more gay Tory MPs than there are Labour ones. And homosexuality has this association with British boarding schools, you know, upper crust, um, Americans, I think, culturally, less so, less so today, but certainly earlier. Americans associate British men as being more a fet and therefore homosexual because we see British people as, as, as being of a higher class than we are. That's not, I mean, Britain, Britain is, is a, is a class ridden society like America, but the, the British people that Americans are exposed to, whether it's the royals or the dramas that we like to watch on television, it's the upper class. That's, that's what fascinates us, right? So there is, this, there is this association in the American public imagination that British men are more prone to be homosexual. There just is. Although I think Hitchens wrote about how <laughs> the, the, the boarding school experience, and I guess it is the British aristocratic experience in, in boarding school, was almost 
intricately linked to the the edges of either sodomy or just sexual power dynamics. And because of the gender segregation, it all, almost always meant men-to-men power relations. Yeah, and yeah. And he, he wrote about that in his memoir and about his own yeah. gay experiences. Um, and extrapolated from that yeah. a little bit. Yeah, and then there's Brides. Brides had revisited. I mean, you know, it goes on and on. Yeah. One last question about this topic. How much of it is it the question of repression, the fear that it could also be me. And because <laughs> uh, when I think about the the amount of energy that gets spent on persecution of sexuality, like a part of me can't really, at least from my contemporary perspective, can't really dissociate disassociate the the energy being spent to it from that being something revealing about the person spending, expending this energy. Yeah, I think that's Why true. Why would you care so much? Yeah, I think that's true. And I think, look, America was a very repressive, repressed place sexually in the 1940s. Well, the late 1940s, I would say, after the war. The war is a very kind of liberating sexual uh, moment. You have gender barriers are, are loosening as women are entering the workforce. Women are serving the cause. Um, you have gay people being sort of, you know, seeing each other and recognizing each other for the first time because of the mass mobilization. But after the war, you have this kind of sexual repression. And what's important in this respect is 1948 is when the Kinsey Report comes out, um, which is the biggest sort of study of sexual behavior in American history. And it shocks the country with the, the figure you know, that one in t- essentially one in 10 men are gay. Um, and that is uh, kind of a wake-up call, right? Because then, then homosexuality becomes this very prevalent thing. You know, it's no longer this... Um, very um, random, rare behavior that exists solely among criminals and, you know, people who lurk in public parks. Now it could be your school teacher. It could be the milkman. Okay. It could be, it could be a state department diplomat. Um, and that, that report comes out in 1948, which is a very important year of the cold war. It's the Berlin crisis. It's, you know, it's a lot's going on in the world um, in, in terms of the international security situation that's um, causing Americans to really fear the rise of communism both at home and domestically. It's when the His Chambers case breaks out. And so homosexuality um, becomes, you know, twinned uh, with this cultural fear of communism. Um, and then, yes, I do think that there is, there is absolutely a connection between repressed homosexuality and then those people um, seeking out homosexuals to oppress. Like it's not, I mean, Hitchens had this famous quote about you know, whenever he heard setting your timer. Yes, whenever he heard some Christian preacher condemn sodomy, he set his watch, um, and and only had to wait uh, a very short time before reading that this person would be, you know, found on their knees in some public restroom. I believe the line was trying to pay off a transgendered Apache for a blowjob with an expired credit card or some, something like that. You'd have to look up the, the, line, the line somewhere, but yeah, I mean, there is a connection between those two. Um, it's not to say that everyone who, every public figure who's anti-gay was a repressed homosexual. I'm not arguing that. Um, by, but, by, but it's still the question of it being something that you can find in yourself, I think, that maybe yeah. is a key cause of it being so terrifying. It's not something that you can completely segregate and, and circumscribe and, and, and point to as this outside group. And if we need, we'll build enough camps and we can throw all of them in there and then the problem is solved. No, because like original sin, you will potentially discover it in yourself. And then what do you do? 
There's actually a great essay that Norman Mailer wrote, I believe in 19, also maybe in 1951, 52, 53, early 1950s, called The Homosexual Villain. Uh, and he wrote it for one magazine, which was the first gay magazine. And he writes about how he, he, he used homosexuality in his novels to, to denote evil and sort of sinister characteristics in his characters. And it wasn't until he really thought about it and met gay people and kind of came to a better realization and then also recognized that he was not himself a latent homosexual, that he became more comfortable with homosexuality. And he felt ashamed of how he had, of the way he used to think. It's actually, it's an essay very far ahead of its time. And also coming from a guy like Norman Mailer, right, who was clearly suffered from a Napoleon complex, uh, was an, you know, uber chauvinist and kind of a sexist pig um, by today's standards. Uh, the paragon of toxic masculinity. <laughs> yeah, to use totally. a, an ugly modern phrase. Sure. And you find, I mean, look, the most virulent homophobia usually comes from straight men um, yeah. who feel threatened by it. And why do they feel threatened by it, right? Those are interesting questions. But then you find, um, you know, the straight men who are really at ease with themselves and comfortable with, this, with themselves, whatever their sexuality may be, then they, then they can drop that. Right. It's it's I feel like it's it's a it's a phase that every straight man has to go through um, that they, they understand that this is something that exists. That homosexuality is something that exists. It's completely natural. Um, I might not be a homosexual uh, and I'm not threatened by it. And, you know, P President Kennedy was like this. and I write about him in the book. He was very, un very rare among men of his time and being really relaxed about around gay men. And his best friend was gay, Lem Billings. Um, and the reason he knew this was because when they were both at boarding school, to go back to that theme, um, basically his friend came on to him, tried to, you know, and, and, and Kennedy basically, you know, gently warded him off and said, I'm not that kind of boy. Um, but he grew up and he had, and he had, and he, and he remained best friends with, with, with Billings. And he, and he had other gay friends like Gore Vidal and whatnot. And he was just, he was very confident in his own sexuality and he wasn't threatened by, by gay men. And so I, I do think that that is something, I mean, there, there, there's a line in my book where I say that the greatest fear of the American male is that he will be homosexual. Um, and I wrote that in the context of the history of my book. Um, but I do think that that was true for a very long time. It may still be true that, that that's something that straight men need to deal with and kind of come to terms with and they need, they need to get over it at some point in their lives, right? And, you know, hopefully they, they get over it when they're young as opposed to holding on to that fear um, into their adulthood when it can really be destructive. Violent, yeah. Violent. Yeah. They can, they can inflict it on their children if they have a son who, or a daughter who's gay. And they can inflict it on society yeah. if they're in power. There you go. By the way, what do you think about the difference in stigma towards gays and lesbians. Look, male homosexuality has always been seen as a greater threat than female homosexuality. You know, in Britain, it was only male homosexuality that was ever banned. I mean, there's this apocryphal story about Queen Victoria not even understanding how lesbians could have sex. That's not true. But it just wasn't, it wasn't banned. It was male sex. I mean, even in Nazi Germany, by the way, it was male homosexuality that was prescribed. Which, is, which isn't to say that lesbians didn't suffer, but it was male sex that was against the law. And the reason for this, there's multiple reasons for this. I mean, one is I think in, in patriarchal societies, which America in the 20th century was and may still be, depending on 
however you want to argue it, but certainly in the 20th century it was, you know, masculinity was considered more important than fe- than femininity, and men were just considered more important than women, and therefore what men do is accorded a higher status and higher importance, uh, whether good or bad, right? And so if it's men who are misbehaving by having sex with one another and abandoning their role as fathers, that that is considered a greater threat to society than women abandoning their roles as mothers because men are just more important. Um, in terms of the government, you know, it was mostly men who had jobs that required security clearances, right, and, that, and who had senior jobs in government. They were therefore subjected to more scrutiny than women in Washington who were mostly serving in secretarial administrative roles, right? And so they weren't being subjected to the kind of intense background checks that men were. You know, male sexuality was also, in particular, gay male sexuality was was uh, ran into more conflict with the law. I mean, you know, gay men, if you're sexually active in the '50s, there's no grinder back then, right? So how are you meeting? How are you meeting other gay men? It's in public places, public parks, restrooms. Um, so you know, every weekend there would be uh, these raids of Lafayette Square, right? And, and, and dozens of men would be arrested. Their names would be printed in the paper. So gay men are sort of running into the law in, in a way that lesbian... I'm not, I'm not an expert on, on lesbian mating rituals, but you know, lesbians are not cruising for sex in public places. It's easier for lesbians to hide culturally. You know, two women can live together well into their 40s, 50s, until their old age, right? They can be spinsters, and people might suspect maybe they're lesbians, but it's in, you know, 20th century America, it's not necessarily as suggestive of possible homosexuality as, say, two men living together, you know, beyond a certain age, right? You know, two young guys, two bachelors in their 20s can live together, but the older you get, people are going to start asking questions about your bachelorhood. And then also, just to be blunt about it, um, Gay male sexuality is more in your face, and there's more of it. Gay men are having a lot more sexual partners than gay women are. You know, by the 1970s and 80s, there are neighborhoods, right, where you see gay men. um, There are sex clubs, right? There are no lesbian sex clubs. There are male sex clubs. There are, you know, cruising areas in San Francisco, and it's, you know, you see it. It's You're confronted with kind of the gay male sexual ecosystem society is. Um, lesbians, you know, there's the old joke, you know, what does a lesbian bring on a second date, a U-Haul? Um, what does a gay man bring to a second date? What's a second date? So it's just, for all these for all these reasons, gay male sexuality is more threatening to, kind, to sort of puritanical American society than lesbianism or, or female homosexuality is. Um, and also when you think of the kind of homophobic attacks that are made in kind of public discourse, you know, the arguments are mostly made against gay men. You know, when you talk about grooming, right, which is this terrible term that's now come up again, people aren't really associating lesbians with grooming young girls. Like that's, sometimes that factors in, but it's really gay men as pedophiles, right? Which is really the kind of worst thing you can say about a gay man, that he's, that he's a pedophile. Um, and that goes back, you know, you could say it goes back to like ancient Greece, right? With, with, with the kind of pederastic relationships, but that slur against gay men that they're, that they're pedophiles. So the whole grooming, when you hear grooming, 
in in the context of what's going on in Florida or some of these states, um, that's really being directed at, at at gay men. So yeah, like the public image of the kind of threatening homosexual is a gay man. It's not really a lesbian. Lesbians have never kind of occupied the same space in the in the kind of nightmares of Americans in the way that the homosexual has. And all, you know, you look at AIDS. I mean, AIDS was a huge part of this, and gay men are seen in the 1980s, um, to quote one of the people I interviewed for my book, is the last lepers of, of American society, right? That they, you, 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 you could really treat gay men and talk about them in public discourse as lepers. And that, that's really how they, were, how they were treated, these you know, depraved, diseased people who had to be quarantined and sort of cut off from society. You know, AIDS was something that affected gay men disproportionately. AIDS was not a lesbian concern. Um, I mean, le- lesbians played a very important role in helping fight the disease, but lesbians themselves were not seen as vectors of it, as, as, as disease carriers. Um, so for all these reasons, um, the perception of the gay male in America is very different from that of the gay woman. So maybe let's, let's talk about the gay movement and the how on earth it was able to, in a very short amount of time, radically change American opinion. Um, it is it is unique, perhaps one of the most unique uh, examples of a of a civil rights movement in terms of its at least in its rapidity. Um, so, would you mind talking a little bit about how how that happened to? be quote unquote so successful so quickly. And then I'll follow up asking like what, what that success means exactly. Uh, well, the one factor it had to its advantage was biology in the sense that gay people are naturally distributed across the human population. And so once those gay people started to come out, there was no, no one in America who was not touched by this issue in the sense that they had a relative or a friend or a coworker who was gay, right? And so it's not like race in that question, right? In the sense that, you know, you could grow up in America as a white person never knowing a black person, or right? Beyond the role of a maid or, or um, a service worker, right? Like America had, was and continues to be in many ways a kind of segregated society. And that, I think, has, has made the civil rights movement for African Americans, they had a, it has, has had a more difficult climb in that, in that sense. Whereas, you know, like the conservative family in Idaho, there's nothing saving them from having a gay kid, right. Or a gay uncle or a gay nephew or whatever. Um, and so once you had an appreciable mass of gay people coming out, then the sort of fear and the lies and the, and the prejudice and the hysteria, that existed for so long about gay people, that dissipated. And that's just nature. If nature had been some other phenomenon where it was only in liberal enclaves that gay people existed, right, then I think we'd have a different political situation. But the fact that gay people are naturally distributed across the human population, that that was a huge factor. You're laying the seeds to the next point, huh? And that's kind of beyond, that's sort of beyond the control of the, of the movement. I, and then to give the movement credit, I think a lot of its success had to do with, first of all, free speech and the fact that we have a First Amendment, free, a right to free expression and association in this country. It is not a coincidence that in the world today, when you look at the countries that are the most accepting 
uh, hospitable places for gay people to live, that they are liberal democracies with free speech and association. And on the other side of the ledger, those countries, whether they be a Christian country in Africa, like Uganda, an Islamic country in the Middle East, like Iran, or a, a Eurasian country like Russia, those countries don't have much in common, say, culturally or racially or whatever you want, but they, what they do have in common is that they are all authoritarian and they do not allow for free speech and association. And so gay people were able to use that right to explain themselves, to make arguments for themselves in their favor, to go on television and uh, tell about their lives, to protest outside the White House, to lobby their elected leaders, to write novels that explained what gay life was like, to write books, um, to emerge as cultural figures in music and theater. And so that's a huge part. I think living in a liberal society, an open liberal society, and using the tools that are available to you as a citizen in a, in a liberal society, I think that that was really the, the, the crucial element. And then the way that the gay movement used it, I think was also important in that they basically made an argument to straight America that we are not different from you. Uh, we may love differently and that we, you know, love people of the same sex, but we want the same things. We want to start families. We want to be accepted into mainstream society. We want to be treated equally. Um, we want to serve our country in the federal government or in the military openly. And we don't want to overthrow American bourgeois, you know, liberal society. We just want to be integrated into it. So that's, those are the, I think the three reasons why I would say the gay movement was so successful. Which starts taking us to the next stage to your liberties article. Yeah. I wonder what made you write the, the queer to gay to queer article. Uh, that was something I've been collecting notes on for several years. Um, and I began sort of noticing this shift in kind of the discussion about all things LGBT a couple of years ago. Um, and I saw an increasing emphasis on transgenderism to the exclusion of gay people. I have this kind of, pet peeve about the Stonewall uprising and the revisionist history that this was something that was, you know, started and led by trans women of color. And that was something that happened around 2015 actually also because it was this movie Stonewall came out and it was assailed by critics saying that, Oh, it centers a white gay man when really it was trans women of color. And then I started noticing that popping up in news stories, mainstream news stories all everywhere. And I saw leaders, politics. I don't know very much about Stonewall. So is that not accurate? Not at all. True. No. And I wrote a piece for tablet a couple of years ago called transgendering Stonewall that lays out the facts. It's just a complete distortion of history. And yet every summer, every June, it becomes more and more the conventional wisdom. And that just sort of bothered me because it's just like, this is so you just take 10 minutes and do the research, read my articles. It's not true at all. And so that was kind of disturbing I mean, there's this book about Stalinism called The Commissar Vanishes, and it's just a, it's these, it shows pictures of before and after certain figures in the, in the Soviet firmament. After they fell out of favor with Stalin, they were removed from official photographs, right? So like there's Stalin and Trotsky, right? And then Trotsky becomes... Right, gets airbrushed. And, 
And like literally, and then like, and that's how Soviet history worked. And it wasn't just pictures, but books. And, you know, it's like 1984. And that's, that's pretty much what was happening with the Stonewall Uprising. This, you know, important event in gay history was just being rewritten to serve an ideological purpose. Again, to emotionally blackmail gay and lesbian people, because right, because it's like, oh, like you wouldn't have your rights if it wasn't for the trans women of color who fought the police in June 1969. So that was just, you know, as a historian and just like as a aware person, I found that really weird and disturbing that the persistence of that myth. And then it was also after winning, and it was the bakery case, because I'm just like, okay, we won. Why are we, like, why are we going after some? baker in the middle of Colorado who's not hurting anyone. He just like doesn't want to make a wedding for a gay couple. Like we're going to elevate this to like the Woolworths lunch counter. This is the next, like, am I really, is my equality being jeopardized by this act? Uh, I'm a real free speech guy and I really believe in personal conscience and I just found it bullying um, trying to make someone violate their religious conscience over something so minor. Like, again, it's a, there are competing values here. Like, yes, is he technically discriminating against gay people? Sure, he is. But there's another value at stake, right? Which is the religious freedom, which, you know, I'm sorry, progressives, like that's in our constitution. People have freedom of religion and religious conscience. And that's something that is important and needs to be protected. And by the way, no one should be made to say something they don't believe in. So when I see like certain athletes who don't want to wear the, who don't want to put the let the rainbow flag patch on their uniform and they're being pressured into doing it and shamed into doing it. It's like that episode from Seinfeld. Right, right. Who doesn't want to wear the ribbon? But it actually, but it really, really bothers me because, you know, I worked for Radio Free Europe and I lived in Prague and I traveled throughout the former Soviet Union. I know a lot about the Cold War and there's something kind of, it's like, it's, it's Vaslav Havel's essay, The Power and the Powerless, the greengrocer in the communist society who doesn't want to put the sign in his shop window, workers of the world unite. But he does it because it, he does it because he doesn't want any trouble from the party. And I felt like the movement was acting like the party, capital P party, right? like making people comply with a rainbow, you know, which by the way, that's like an ideological statement. You know, it is. Okay. I, I happen to agree with the ideology, which is acceptance of gay and lesbian people, but you know, people shouldn't be made to say or do things against their conscience. I really deeply believe in that. Like it's kind of like what America is about. No matter how and sucky it, their conscience might be. Fine. You know what? It's a big effing country of no, no, 330 million people. And like people should be allowed to not only have, but express their reprehensible views. No, and that's that, really that's, important. That's, I, I despise the anti-BDS um, um, laws and I hate all any sure. kind of attempt to yeah. diligent like, anti-Semitism. I'm not a fan of anti-Semitism, but... Of course, of course. People should be allowed to be anti-Semitic and to express yeah. their anti-Semitism. And yeah. by the way, and so I just it just seemed like that the movement, the gay movement, which had once been about securing equal rights, civil rights for gay and lesbian people was now about forcing private citizens to express certain beliefs that they disagreed with. It had gone from a live and let live and had gone from a live and let live movement to an, to an enforcement of ideological conformity movement. And that was a real dramatic shift and one I really didn't like. Um, and I see that now and it's, it's in like in every part of our society now. Um, and it's by the way, sparking a backlash against gay people. I and mean, I, there, there's a statistic that just came out that, 
the percentage of Americans who believe that homosexuality um, should be accepted as moral has declined 8% in the last year. Why could that be? After going up for so many right, years, right. all of a sudden last year it goes down. Why would that be? Is it because Americans just Americans just decide this guy out of the bed one morning and decided, oh, like these gay people who we accepted and gave equal rights to, we hate them now. No, there's something else going on. Like there's 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 the excesses of the transgender movement, um, and there's this bullying tone, uh, this refusal to accept yes for an answer and to be magnanimous in victory. Um, there was a famous that's part Louis C.K. joke where. I've- I think from a, around it, the time of the uh, Supreme Court case, we're saying, you know, gayness is not something nobody's doing. Nobody's being gay at you. Yeah. And I think the perception is for a lot of people from the, in, you know, American center to center right is that, oh, I, I, now I kind of feel that they are. Yeah, I mean, there's that onion. There's that onion article. Gay pride parade sets mainstream acceptance of gay rights back thirty years. I mean, definitely. <laughs> there's an element of that. So I remember talking, uh, maybe a year after the uh, Supreme Court decision to legalize gay marriage, with a woman who's was a lesbian. It was, uh, I think, in her sixties uh, or seventies, and it was definitely. Uh, hardcore activist. And I remember being surprised at how uh, dejected she was about the, the, the court's decision because she saw that as the um, capitulation of the movement to bourgeois values. Gay marriage will destroy the institution of homosexuality. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so... Can you can you translate where where um, this is this coming from? This was the gay marriage decision that she was upset by. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a very minority position, especially among lesbians. By the way, yeah, no, I don't think it was specifically um, um, indicative of of a, a lesbian stance. I think it was more indicative of a certain subset of a generation that saw radicalism as part of the fight against the uh, bourgeois established family unit um, to be part of what, what sexual, like the sexual revolution is. Sure. So as I, as I've argued before, there are basically two strains of the gay movement. There's the assimilationist strain, which is the one associated with Frank Kameny and the Mattachine society. And I would say the mainstream gay rights movement that existed until 2015 and then there is the liberationist, so you could say the queer liberationist strain that emerges after Stonewall, which was a riot against police brutality um, that tries to align itself with the anti-Vietnam War movement and the Black Power movement. And they send a delegation of workers to Cuba to help Castro. Um, and this was not the dominant strain, uh, the liberationist one. It was always there. On the fringes, I think it had outsized influence in the academy, certainly, um, but it never represented an appreciable number of gay people. I mean, as I've said, most gay people just want to be respected equal members of society. They want to have a job, start a family, you know, 
contribute to their neighborhoods just like other people do. But it was represented in the intellectual work that surrounded a lot of that. Totally. Yes. And if you look, I mean, there's all these writers and intellectuals and academic figures like Judith Butler and I could go on and on. Right. And aesthetically, I guess, I think I remember reading in your book that like what was when Frank Kameny called a protest, he asked people to like wear suits and like and look like they're ready for their first day at work because essentially that's what you're saying in your protest that like I am employable. I am just like you. Right. And aesthetically, there's a very big difference between someone portraying that image uh, in the demand of rights versus someone saying, you know, perhaps aesthetically the kind of person that's going to say like I don't believe in marriage it's a it isn't an institution that like re- represents me and my values and it's a complete it's both a, a, politically they have different texts but aesthetically they're also very the, the way that they wear I guess their sexuality is completely different yeah I mean Frank said if you want to be em, uh, employed you have to look employable um, so he was very strict about the dress code all the women had to wear flat soled shoes and skirts below the knee um, the men had to wear suit and ties. Which I can imagine why someone would feel like that is a complete suppression of gayness. Yes, well, well, uh, gayness. What is gayness? Gayness is just your attraction to people of the same sex. It does not have any, in my opinion, it does not denote anything beyond that. I mean, there are gay conservatives. There are gay communists. There are gay fascists. There are gay social democrats. Uh, it is like having blue eyes or being left-handed, right? It is, it is naturally dispersed across humanity, um, and what I have an issue with now is I see this notion of queerness basically being a kind of fashion statement for a lot of people. I call it, I actually call it queer face, uh, where people can just adopt this identity now without actually having to be homosexual. Uh, that queerness just denotes to them weirdness, right? Or just not being normal being anti-normal, whatever normal is supposed to mean. Um, And it's become a fashion that you can wear. Um, And I find it obnoxious. Uh, I find it obnoxious when people who are functionally straight uh, claim to speak on behalf of me or other homosexual people. And I think that's a lot of what we're dealing with now. Uh, And that's really sort of the change, one of the many changes that's happened as the traditional gay rights movement has been superseded by the queer liberation movement, which is basically what is now, um, if you look at the major organizations, they're, they're now essentially queer liberation organizations. They're not gay, lesbian, gay and lesbian equality organizations. How do we get to this point as you see it um, before we even start um, going back and forth on how it's playing out and how, and where we, we might each of us have different disagreements? Cause I, this, this is, I think, where um, maybe Jamie and I are at least intellectually closer to maybe where Vanessa is. I'm not sure. But um, but I, but before we even start unpacking and figuring this out, I want to think, how, how do we get here? Because what is it that makes a sexual preference become a... Not a preference. A I hear that term. And something I, else. Yeah, I would say orientation is an important... Or in, in the sense that it's not a choice. Sexual, I don't prefer, right. I don't, right. I don't prefer men over women. Uh, I don't, I'm not interested sexually or romantically with women at all. And it's not, it's not, a, it's not like my preference for lamb over chicken. 
Uh, it's how I am biologically oriented to people of, of the same sex. I can I um, can hi, uh, take cover behind uh, my ESLness on. No, no, it's fine. People uh, use that term. No, 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 people I'm, no use- I'm joking. I'm joking. I, I, I actually I share this preference to this word precisely because of that reason, especially with what I'm trying to 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 mm-hmm. say that that something that we see as an immutable uh, part of your of your makeup suddenly becoming a token for or a, a, a cause or a symbol for a bigger fight, which seems which is associated with the fight against, you could say, Americanism or capitalism or the West or yeah. whatever it was associated since this, whatever was yeah. the, the focal of uh, resentment since the 60s. So how, yeah. does, how do those two things become attached? Well, it's always there, like I said. And the reason why it's now come to the forefront, I think, is because after 2015, when the Supreme Court recognizes gay marriage, um, these organizations that are devoted to gay rights basically have a choice. Um, they could call, they could say that they are victorious and move on, shut down, basically, or you know, exist in some form where they're like combating societal homophobia and whatnot, right? Um, but they don't. They decide to basically embrace gender theory, a kind of radical gender theory, um, and they're going beyond just equality for transgender people, right? Which we can all, most Americans support. Most Americans, according to polls, support um, anti-discrimination protections for transgender adults. Um, But what they're now doing, these organizations, is, you know, insisting on uh, very risky, untested, scientifically unsound medical procedures on children, which have been banned in an increasing number of European countries. You know, pushing this in America has now become a very, a human rights cause you know, the human rights cause of our day apparently is protecting so-called, you know, trans kids, this euphemism, medically necessary gender affirming care, all those words for sex changes. Um, this has now become the real push, uh, biological men in women's sports um, biological men in women's spaces, and just denying the sex binary as a reality. So the gay movement, which believed in freedom for all, believed in individual rights and live and let live. And I would point to the cake, the cake baking case, the masterpiece, masterpiece cake shop case was important um, because this signaled the shift from live and let live to ideological enforcement of ideas. So the context um, for people who don't know the was case. A cake, it was a baker, a Christian baker in Colorado who was minding his own business one day until the gay couple, knowing that he was a conservative Christian baker, um, went in asking that he make them a cake for their same-sex wedding. He refused on religious conscience grounds, the First Amendment. And this was a Supreme Court case. Um, and, and, the, and the Supreme Court sided, rightfully, in my opinion, with the baker. And there was another instance of this also in Colorado, another Supreme Court case a couple of weeks ago involving a conservative Christian um, website designer who sort of preemptively announced that she would not be designing websites for gay couples. I believe in the First Amendment. Uh, I do not need the validation of every American citizen of my, of my equality. As long as I'm being treated equally by the government and I'm not being discriminated against by my government, I frankly don't care what other people think of me. And I don't need, and, and it's preposterous as the liberal minority in the Supreme Court was arguing, was tr- trying to compare this to basically the situation of 
you know, African-American people in the segregated South. I mean, this is not like a, a black man driving through Mississippi in the 1960s with the Green Book, you know, like fearful that he might walk into the wrong motel uh, and not live to see the day. I mean, this is not what the situation is like for gay people. You wouldn't know that listening to our organizations, including our leading one, the Human Rights Campaign, which just a couple of weeks ago declared a national state of emergency right. for LGBT people. The first time in their history, right? So since uh, we survived AIDS, we survived, right. we survived Don't Ask, Don't Tell, we survived uh, the federal marriage amendment under the George W. Bush administration, none of those constituted a national state of emergency. Apparently now, the fact that some states are regulating the provision of hormones and puberty blockers to children, this somehow constitutes a threat to gay and lesbian lives. It's silly. It's hysterical. It's cynical. You know, I... Some of these people actually believe it. Most of them, I think, need this because they need to believe that they're fighting for some valiant cause. Um, and there's also a lot of money involved, let's be honest. There's a lot of uh, jobs in this field, in these organizations. There's a lot of pensions you know, and, and salaries that need to be paid and, and trying to um, terrify gay people that uh, it's never been a more dangerous time to be a gay person in America. Um, you know, scaring them into coughing up money for your organizations. I think that's also a play here too. Mm-hmm. But but I do want to go back to 2015 because I find this I find this pivot point quite interesting. And I'm assuming that then they didn't necessarily know where they would be now. And I'm assuming that then it was more like a, a realization of okay, we as a gay movement has come as far as we can. We have achieved our pinnacle goal here. What is the next step if if not to try and expand rights for other folks who identify in different with different sexualities and different sexual orientations? Was that I'm assuming that that kind of quite well, like I said, what other of the impetus? Sure, but I mean, fast forward five years to 2020 when the Supreme Court, in a decision written by Neil Gorsuch, who's a Trump-appointed justice, uh, Bostock versus Clayton County, adds not only sexual orientation but gender identity to the list of categories protected by the 1964 Civil Rights Act. So then in employment, gay people are now protected from discrimination and transgender people. So I'm not sure, frankly, what rights... Uh, we lack or what rights transgender people lack unless you consider the right of Leah Thomas to compete alongside biological women unless you consider that a legitimate right I don't and the vast majority of the country doesn't either and I think the the LGBT organizations are really um, doing themselves a lot of discredit by making this the hill that they want to die on because you know what they're going to die on it they're not going to win this battle they're not going to be able to convince the majority of the American people that biological sex is a social construction. They're just not. And that's the other reason why the gay, that's it. You asked me, why did the gay movement win? Because it had, it had, it was right. Like it had science, but it had science on its side. Like homosexuality is not something that can be reversed. It has existed since the dawn of human history in every society. Right. And it's not a mental illness. It doesn't, all the claims that were made about gay people, in the 20th century that I document in my book were, pro- were demonstrably false. They're not more liable to be tra- traitors. They're not more liable to sexually molest children. They are not mentally ill. All those things were proven false. What the, what the gender movement or the queer movement is now arguing 
it's telling people that two plus two equals 957 and they can just see through it. They just, they see through it. Like they know that this is not right. Um, they're perfectly willing to respect transgender people and they don't think that they should be discriminated against. We know that by the polls, but that's not like, they're not asking for that anymore. They're asking for a whole suite of other highly contestable things that I don't think they're going to be able to convince the American people of, frankly. Okay. So different things are going on here. There's a side where the impulse to experiment with sexuality, with modes of gender, with types of family are, in my view, at least worthwhile and interesting because those are questions that humans ask themselves and wonder whether the, the way we understood ourselves in society was an incomplete picture of who we could be and the wide array of possibilities of human life. Giving the space to experiment with that, I think, is a core piece of liberalism as I understand it. Key to pluralism is being able to think through who you are and express that. That applies to political life, but also to your your own basic urges and sexualities and views of identity. That's where fluidity can be interesting. And I think that's what the professor that I mentioned was sighing about in response to the Supreme Court decisions to legalize gay marriage. She was lamenting the fact that what once was a movement that included exploration and, and challenging established views about sexuality and family was now being submerged into the bourgeois lifestyle. So having the space for that is great. But by definition, and that's the point, I think, that by definition, this kind of exploration happens on the margins because it's about testing the limits of who we are and, and, and pushing in different directions. That's not a mainstream project. The problem that we're facing now is the political push to make that a mainstream project, to enforce that as a mainstream alternative to bourgeois lifestyle. And it's fine if things change. So if over time we shift from the current status quo to something more in line with what's being promulgated academically, that's that, okay, but that could happen. But the problem we're seeing now is that there is a desire to police this new way of life. So instead of working for emancipation and creating the negative rights, the negative freedoms for people to be who they are, the political push is about forcefully changing society. So it's about policing language. It's about changing school curriculum. It's about changing how we think about, say, women's sports. It's about, say, changing um, medical standards. In other words, it's not about a freedom to self-explore and discover, but about social revolution, which means constricting freedoms for anybody who disagrees with you. All that in the name of forcingly removing, supplanting, one dominant mode of life that has been established by generations of tradition with a, a, a different orthodoxy, which has been summoned through the imprecations of academia. And some of the people spearheading this push are making big assumptions on how willing society is, as it is now, to go along with this, how much 
are the normies going to stomach as these as they're pelted with these new standards yeah it's it's taking the marginal for the whole right so like Planned Parenthood had a tweet a couple of weeks ago where they said we're no longer going to refer to abortion as a women's rights issue because there are trans men who have abortions and therefore to refer to abortion as a women's rights issue excludes them. I'm sorry. I mean, you can acknowledge that trans men get pregnant and have abortions. That doesn't negate the fact that abortion is an issue that is, I mean, it's an issue that all of us should be concerned about, right? But it is an issue especially for women. And it has been. And it's important that we recognize that because women have been discriminated against in this country for so long that to erase them from an issue that is biologically connected to womanhood, as pregnancy is, that's something that only that biological women can experience. I will never experience pregnancy, and neither will you, Adam. Okay, so this is something that is fundamentally a women's issue. And we see this across our country now where, you know, um, women are being erased from these conversations and um, by this bizarre language, these language games that these people play, uh, which I find to be very regressive. I'm not, I've always considered women's rights and women's equality a progressive issue. Um, I find it very strange now that we have people who claim to be progressives trying to erase womanhood from these conversations and advocating that biological males who are stronger physically, um, faster, uh, who are physically advantaged, let's just face it, men are physically advantaged over women, um, that they would now be advocating for them to compete in sports against women. How is that a progressive position? And why are we being asked to reorder our our, our society and our, and our understandings of the English language um, and politics for this tiny, tiny, tiny minority. Again, the gay rights movement never the gay rights movement never asked this of anyone. It never said that gay that straight people had to give anything up. That they ever had to change. I mean, sure, did they have to change their understanding of the definition of marriage? I guess you could argue they did. But come on, it's not comparable. The gay movement was never asking for um, revolutionary, radical, mind altering changes to our understanding of reality in the way that the queer that the queer liberation movement is i just you know to button this up i think we're recording this a couple of weeks after the the story about john hopkins defining lesbians as attraction yes. between non-men yes <laughs> yes the, this, this, the, this, the thing where i get stuck i think because i have i have uh, friends who, like you, get quite angry at what they see happening in, in increasingly more mainstream places, right? Which is like these extreme fringe views getting, getting, giving kind of airtime as if they are like fact. Um, and I understand why people get so annoyed and angry, but I, I don't spend a lot, purposefully don't spend a lot of time on social media and Twitter. And I purposely kind of try to, to not. You don't have to spend time. No, you, that's, you, that's the thing. You don't have to. You're, you're, you're going right. to experience it whether or not right. you're on Twitter. It's going to invade your, it's invading your life. It's, it's. F fair enough. And I, and I agree. You're going to be asked for your pronouns and you're going to be, you know, asked yes. for your pronoun. You know, it's. Well, I mean, for me, I don't mind being asked for my pronouns, but that's a whole other thing we don't need to get into at the second. No, no, but, but it's interesting because think... no, the point here is not th th whether or not you personally mind it is that just the fact that it, this is already encroaching on 
So yeah. for it's political, me, it's, it's, it's political indoctrination. To me, it is, it, is, it is little different than a loyalty oath in the 1950s. If you express any hesitancy or opposition mm-hmm. to sharing your pronouns, you might as well be telling someone that you're a communist in 1950s mm-hmm. America. And that is the point that it serves, by the way. It is basically to signal to the room of people who are being asked, their pro, you know, which one of these pe- which one of you is not with the program? So it has, not, it has very little to do with making transgender people feel comfortable in a space. It has everything to do, in my opinion, with, with ideological conformity and um, calling people out who are not with the program. Yeah, and I and I understand that, and I I, see, I can feel places where that has certainly been the tenor and tone, where like that the point is to signify I am part of this tribe, and if you do not compi- com, uh, comply, comply, then you are not part of the tribe. And I understand that, but I have also been in places and situations where it for, for me, I come from this from like a very practical place, I guess, and I see a natural evolution of people around me who I cannot necessarily know for sure if I say she or he, right? And I am around people in in my workplace, in my like daily going on, right? And, and the fact that we have little pronouns next to our name is actually, to me, I find quite helpful. And for me, when I ask people, if, if you want to identify, I find like, okay, great. I know now what to, what to call you. And if I make a mistake, I'm going to apologize and I'm going to move on with my life. Um, and for me, it's like a... Uh, a way of, I'm getting sidetracked into the pronoun discussion, didn't mean to do this, but here we go. Um, for me, it's like a way of you take it or leave it. And it's just kind of like a, a, a essentially like interpersonal interaction and kind of kindness, I suppose, that I can do for other people. And it is helpful if we are explicit and transparent about it so that there isn't this so why don't we also confusion. sorry so so why don't we also have the standard of putting uh, parentheses with our uh, religions uh, so like so that I don't get accidentally invited to a Christmas party mm-hmm. but that's like I hardly can handle that microaggression of somebody mistaking me God forbid for a Christian or even worse a Protestant because you you by you, the way I just, just say there have been I've so many times and most gay people can of my age can sympathize with this multiple times in my life that I've been asked about a girlfriend or a wife. I don't take offense to it. Maybe I should. Maybe I should have taken offense at this. I don't. Uh, sometimes I say, no, actually, you know, I have a male part. I have a boyfriend or part, whatever. Sometimes I just let it slide and I go on with my life. And I don't see why it's that different, frankly, with the pronouns. I'm not going to announce in my email signature that I'm gay. Most people, you know, know just because I'm kind of a public figure. But lots of gay, most gay people aren't public figures. And, they, and they've, they've faced, they faced that. And and. You know, if it's meant, this is this is what's the important difference. If it's if it's if it's an innocent, depends on the intention, right? Intention matters a lot. Okay, I don't I don't take someone asking me if I have a girlfriend or a wife. I don't necessarily, in fact, vast majority of cases, I don't take it as as an indignity. Okay, because I know that it's just look. Most of the population is heterosexual. I don't necessarily. I, I'm, I'm, I guess, sort of kind of straight acting. Okay, so I don't, I don't mind. I don't mind. And I look, could I, I could go through life if I wanted to, constantly aggrieved at this fact. And there are, you know, and there are gay people who do. There are gay people who wake up every morning and see their life as an un, unceasing struggle against the cishet patriarchy. Okay, I'm not one of those people, and I don't. And I think the vast majority of gay people aren't. I, I fear that the younger generation are being conditioned to think this way, to think that they live in a cis, in a cis heteropatriarchy. 
Um, which again, you know what? Read my book and understand the history and see what it, see, see what it was really like <laughs> to live in a cis a cishet patriarchy. Because we don't live in that. I'm sorry, we don't. There's never been a better time to be gay in the world. And one last thing about why I think specifically the pronouns is, has even a, a sinister effect. That's intentional or not. Beyond the question of it being a proxy for compliance or for getting with the program, as Jamie put it. But I, I, if you think of, if you take the assumption that most of the people who are currently participating or identifying in some way with the, with gender fluidity or experimenting in that field, I mean, I, I, I assume that most of them are not consciously subscribing to the full political statement that might be implied by the, the, the intellectual heft, or right. if you can call it heft, but the intellectual <laughs> history behind it. I, I assume that most of them just see uh, grow into a world where they see in, in mainstream culture a menu of options, whether you want to think of it as a fashion or as a self-molding of identity. I think all that is fine. I, I don't, there's nothing wrong with, with seeing gender or sexuality, in my opinion, as something more akin to fashion where you can play with it. What I add to my concern, A, a, a there is Jamie's point about, well, but don't equate that with the sort of repression and persecution that gay history has in, in our society, number one, because that's almost uh, stolen glory or stolen valor. And second, what I worry about with specifically with the pronouns is that when you institutionalize the idea that if you don't have signals at the front of a conversation, then that implies disrespect and that implies some measure of micro oppression. Then you're teaching kids to look out for these points of offense. And from the subjective perspective of kids growing up into this system, that, that actually might have a real mental toll on their sense of self and their sense of belonging, because now you teach them to expect that. Now you teach them that if you don't have that little stupid uh, corporate parenthesis, then that means that somebody is making a statement tantamount to putting uh, a KKK in their uh, profile, right? Yeah, it's another thing for this generation to be constantly on the lookout and, uh, and upset about. On the hunt for, on the hunt for, you know, microaggressions, right? Absolutely. I feel like a lot of the, like, when you're talking about the conditioning and the victimhood and the f feeling like you can't win in this patriarchal society, I think that's, that is like, it is indicative of the left, progressives in general of the left. Um, it doesn't necessarily, it, it, it intertwines with the queer movement, but it is not, it is not only inherent in the queer movement. Like, this is just no. something that is happening on the left yeah. and manifesting in a lot of, in a lot of different ways. And for me, when I always think about the word queer, I'm, I don't know, I'm always coming at it from a practical, from, in my mind, a practical place. Like, I'm not steeped in the intellectual history, and I'm, perhaps that's a problem because by utilizing these words and not understanding the intellectual history, maybe I'm like subconsciously perpetuating things. But when I when I think about the fact that as it has become more so socially acceptable to be of different sexual orientations, including gay, including others, more people are kind of identifying in different ways. And we need some kind of terminology to express what is happening around us. And for, that is why I started using the word queer to express not only gay people, but gay people and many other sexualities and uh, orientations. What other sexuality, what other, other than homosexuality and bisexuality and heterosexuality, what other sexualities are there? 
I, be- I mean, there's, I guess there's like a the question of what do you want to say orientations or something more specific than that, but what other I sexual mean, identities are there beyond the, those three? I have heard of many other sexual I know. Identities. And I don't think, asexuality, I don't think, you don't think well, that's exists. fine. I don't understand. Well, sure. Asexuality exists. I don't know what it has to do with homosexuality or the, certainly mm-hmm. the gay movement. Gay mm-hmm. people were oppressed because of their sexuality. You could go mm-hmm. to jail for having, you go to jail for having sex with someone of the same sex. How are asexual people oppressed? Have they ever been oppressed in this country by their government? So why is that now affixed onto the end of the acronym? Doesn't make mm. any sense to me. Doesn't make any sense to me. So you're okay? saying that so, even having the word queer is, isn't necessarily, because we don't need a word for catch-all sexualities because there is, there, it is too expansive to, to have a political meaning. Is that what you're saying? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes. So... And I don't believe that there are other sexuality. I've heard, I've heard some of these terms, demisexual, which means mm-hmm. you can't have sex with someone. Sepiosexual. I don't, I don't, I don't understand. Pansexual it means that you're in, you're interested in trans and cisgender people. Is that what I pansexual so, means? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I guess that maybe uh, defines a certain portion of the population. I'm not really sure. Um, a lot of this is piggybacking on the success of the gay rights movement. Um, and it is degrading, diluting what that means, what it, what the gay experience, uh, entails. Um, and a lot of these things are just like, a lot of these things are just like fetishes. They're just like sexual fetishes, frankly. And, you know, that's not unique to gay people. Straight people have sexual, sexual fetishes. Why is sexual fetish now part of, uh, what used to be known as the gay and lesbian civil rights movement. That's what I want to understand. Right, the key is the civil rights. Why are we associating yes. this yes. sexual discussion, which could be, there could be a very interesting cultural discussion about expending or destigmatizing a broader uh, set of behaviors, maybe, but does it have anything to do with civil rights? And does the fact that, you know, the Supreme Court doesn't acknowledge or, or, or that there are no laws addressing these sexual, and this time we are talking about, I guess, sexual preferences, although, you know, you can't really make the distinction fully between preference and orientation without delving into the question of free will. But, you know, let's assume that there is that there is a line there. The law does not need to get into these questions if nobody is actively oppressed from these groups. And to the extent that they are, that it, it is uh, maybe room for, you know, a circumscribed debate, but certainly not of the scope of gay movement in the 50s because we are not dealing with the same kind of numbers. Although that does bring us to the question of, you seem to imply in your article that there is a social contagion in all of this, right? Of course there is. <laughs> of course there is. I mean, why, why does the percentage of girls identifying as trans shoot up something like 4,000% uh, you know, from 20, around 2015? We're just supposed to expect this is just a natural biological occurrence? I mean, come on. And of course, when there's an actual study into this, it's done in conjunction with Brown University. It is called transphobic, and the university takes it off its website and disowns the the the, the study. Okay, this is the other thing that I have a problem with with this new gender queer movement is that the the gay movement was open to science and it had science on its side, and it did not try to, you know, shut down scientific inquiry. Quite on quite the opposite, it actually. You know, Frank Kameny successfully got the American Psychiatric Association to remove homosexuality from the, the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual's list of mental disorders, because it, it actually marshaled scientific evidence 
And what we have now is the complete opposite. We have the, the shutting down of scientific inquiry, which is always a bad sign. Always a bad sign. Um, and I've, you know, any political movement, by the way, that tries to shut down speech, you should be, you should be deeply suspicious of because they have something to hide because they cannot withstand scrutiny. They cannot withstand cr- criticism. And the queer, um, you know, the queer trans movement today is one that cannot withstand criticism. So it cancels people who question its precepts. It uh, pressures scientific organizations and medical associations um, to adhere to its ideological demands, oftentimes that are at variance with scientific evidence. Um, so this is another real difference between the gay and lesbian civil rights movement and whatever you want to call this movement today. So you don't think there's any use for having a term that encapsulates people? LGBT. I don't see what's wrong with LGBT. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I understand. Look, there's some people who use queer as a kind of catch-all for all those identities. Mm-hmm. Fine. I, I really, I will never accede uh, to queer. I just won't because the word means strange and weird. And that's frankly mm-hmm. why, that's frankly why the people who use it embrace it is because they want to be seen as strange and weird because they think that normality is, this is basically what queer theory boils down to, right? That normality is evil. Uh, normality is bad. Or at least uh, boring, which is, you know. Fine. Okay. No, they would go more than I know. boring. No, 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 no. I know, I know. Oppressive. Right. Oppressive is the yeah. term. Oppressive. Normality is oppressive. And whereas I believe in a liberal, a liberal pluralistic concept of society, right. which is that people who are not normal in the defi- textbook definition, right? Homosexuality is, I guess, you could say it's abnormal in the sense that a small number of people are gay. But that's fine. You can live in a pluralistic society where people who are not, you know, the straight, white, you know, two and a half children organization man, you know, you, we, we, we can live in a society that respects difference, right? That's fine. That's cool. But that's not enough for the queers who celebrate. And by the way, they don't have to celebrate. And they think that the ab, they, they want to privilege and argue that they are superior, right? That queerness is superior to heterosexuality. Right, that 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 that, that there, and this is why I think you see in a sense of a lot of these, it's truer to yeah, something, yeah, to the, to human that they're nature. actually, yeah, they're in touch with who they are, yeah. right, and that these boring cisgender heterosexual people are somehow less than or unworthy, and no one, by the way, no wonder all these kids are identifying as queer now, okay, because we live in a society that, and in many cases, privileges is victimhood and privileges these these ever more boutique identities that. Uh, you know, we're being a, a straight white guy. You're the you're evil. So of course, all these kids now are going to identify as anything but that. I think. And I think it's and this. I think it's da- and, and to the extent that we're now medicalizing it. Yeah. Okay. We're medicalizing gender nonconformity. Okay. Right at this moment where we, as a society, we're accepting gender nonconformity, and many, if not most, of these kids who are declaring themselves trans, I think, are actually gay. Okay, and in, in an earlier era, we would have understood that, that the, the boy who plays with the Barbie dolls and wears his sister's dresses you know, is probably going to grow up to be a, a fabulous gay man, okay? And likewise, the girl who, you know, maybe she's just a, maybe that girl's just, just a tomboy and she'll grow up to be heterosexual. We don't know. And it's fine. It's fine. You know, gender expression is a, there's a, there's a diverse range of gender expressions, and just at this moment in society, when we were beginning to accept that, in comes this queer um, redefinition 
where now we are diagnosing gender nonconformity as trans a transgender identity, right? And so that those kids who are not conforming to stereotypical gender norms, they're actually members of the opposite sex. And that I find to be a very problematic uh, approach and a very, and a very re- regressive one too, by the way. You know, girls should be allowed to grow up and not exhibit stereotypically feminine interests and behaviors and still be considered girls. And likewise, boys should be allowed to experiment with, you know, effeminacy um, or, you know, or they should be allowed to not conform to stereotypically masculine gender norms and still maintain a male identity. And I worry that we are rushing these kids into decisions that have lifelong consequences. You know, if it, if it was just, if, if there wasn't a medical component to all this, if there weren't hormones and surgeries and, and then, then I, I don't think people would be as up in arms about it, but the fact, you know, and we, and we, and we see that once that there's, there's little opposition, very little opposition to what adults want to do in this regard. Okay. It's when you get involved with kids, then tempers flare. Um, and by the way, that, that's another difference between the gay movement and this queer movement, right? Is that, um, the gay movement was not interested in indoctrinating children in abstruse theories. Okay, uh, this movement is. <laughs> it has a, it has an agenda, and uh, it has a, it has a radical ideological ideological agenda. And it and it and it in the places you know in certain enclaves of the country, it is pushing it on children. And I yeah, have a real right. problem with that. Yeah, so I think it's confusing. I, I think it's confusing to kids, especially to gay kids. No, I. You know, I, who, I, I, I accept completely everything like the the idea that how it can be confusing and the the idea that there is something almost malevolent in and regressive in in reaffixing people into gender conventions especially at such a young age i just want to give the most charitable account of what the argument is cuz cuz we all know that transgenderism is a real thing that has real impact on people's lives of course it does and for some teenagers or are experiencing some form of gender dysphoria, maybe some gender affirming care at an early age could be a significant boon to their mental health. And I, yes, I but not nearly, in, uh, not nearly in the numbers, not nearly in the numbers. No, that right, it's right, right. That's what I want to distinguish. I, like, I want to give credit to that idea and, and see where the impulse to, to offer that as an option to people comes in. And I can see where it gets sincere uh, or, or it was where it strums sincere feelings of compassion with people, understanding that if you are truly sincerely stuck in a way that is stifling your your ability to express life to its fullest, just because you feel like you are not in the body that you belong in, and doing something medically to change that would make all the difference in the world, then you want to make sure that that the government does not prohibit that possibility. And that's where you do have a very uh, narrow, but but still very deep cut of civil rights questions when it comes to transgenderism. But I also understand your point that because we're talking with children and because this is an irreversible process, you want to be able to talk about this openly where you're truly asking the difficult questions around that. And I think the problem is politically with this movement is that there is no real openness to no, and they resort. Do you actually want this full treatment or is there something short of that that might help you, you know, cope with your Yeah, and they emotions? resort 
they resort to emotional blackmail, claiming that if you don't accede to their demands, trans kids are going to die, right? They're going to kill themselves. And they trot out these false statistics um, to get their way. They refer to those who oppose them as wanting to murder trans kids. They use that yeah. word, right? Or denying the, denying the existence of transgender people, which is utter nonsense. So the, the, the rhetorical tricks that they play are um, extremely cynical and dishonest and I think are putting gay children at risk because a lot of these kids are gay. And, they're not, and, and if you don't go through puberty, how are they ever going to know that, by the way? If you're arresting their puberty, their pubertal development by putting them on puberty blockers before they even have sexual feelings, right? You arrest that process. How are these kids going to know what their sexual orientation is? Um, uh, you've already given us a lot of your time, and I don't want to drag you back. Um, there's just so much more I wanted to ask you. And I, I got time. Uh, I got time. Okay, so I... I, I Friday I, afternoon. I, I'm just, you know, chilling <laughs> in my office. So, so I do wonder where you see the current state of the movement coming from. You, you imply that it's because of uh, basically reaction to victory and, and, and whether it's from a business perspective of keeping some, some civil liberties organizations afloat or because of a, a progressive urge to keep fixing problems that don't necessarily need fixing. Is that, is that, do you see that as the sum of it? Is that why we're in this hyper ideal like I the re-ideologiz- ideologization, the repolitization of gender. Yeah. There might be a deeper philosophical um reason for it. I do think a huge part of it is is that um for progressives, and I distinguish progressives from liberals, um, for progressives, there is an inherent need to constantly epater le bourgeois, uh, to scandalize the bourgeoisie, right? And so these it's just like you're not really a true progressive unless you're f- pissing off some someone who shops at you know Walmart, right? Like the flyover states. Like unless unless you're shocking them and driving them up the wall with whatever it is, right? You know, no borders, uh, abolish the police. Just throwing out rant, crazy proposals. Abolish the police. Uh, no such thing as a sex binary. Uh, you know, like. Who knows what's next? It's it, that's a huge part of it. It's the thrill, it's the thrill of scandalizing the normies. Um, you know, it just it doesn't cut it for me. I get my thrills. I don't know, eating a really good meal, uh, reading a great book. I think people who find their excitement in life out of politics are, and by the way, this clearly is on the right too. Okay, what is Donald Trump? But I was just gonna say the right wing, the right wing version of 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 scandalizing the libs, you know, liberal tears. Okay. How much does that fuel right-wing politics? To me, people who get their thrills out of politics, that's actually a really dangerous impulse because politics should not be based on that. It should be based on pragmatism and trying to solve problems, right? Like actual material problems and working with people who you might disagree with finding common ground. That's what, you know, that's what, politics should really be about it shouldn't be about finding excitement this is like the the romantic impulse in politics is a very dangerous thing in my mind because that's kind of what social welfare as your boredom alleviation game yeah yeah it's not about like helping the poor people down the street it's about you know you um 
uh, feeling good about yourself because you're woker than now, right? Or if on the right wing, the right wing analog to this, it's like, you know, we're not just going to protest the, you know, election irregularities. We're going to fucking uh, ransack the Capitol and we're going to deny that the election was fair and we're going to nominate for president a guy who has no decorum whatsoever because that's, that gives us a thrill. Fuck that. So, but, I'm seriously just like, you need to <laughs> fucking grow up as a country. But I'm, I'm, I found it hard to, cause I, I, I remember reading in the article that you did, you did make this point quite strongly that it is a lot of, a lot of what is happening is all about people, progressives wanting, seeking this, this thrill of being marginal, of being transgressive, mainstream, transgressive. transgressive. And I found that very hard to relate to actually, I don't, I'm not denying that it exists, but I, I don't know. It, it, it felt like it can't all be about that. To me, it didn't feel like. It's not all about that. I think that they've, they've convinced themselves in many cases that this is the next human rights battle uh, in some way. And maybe they do look at society and they do see these disparities and that, and that, and they, they do have a sincere desire to make the world a better place. I'm sure some of them think that. I do think uh, a lot of them sincerely believe that the uh, the the systems we have in place are h- more harmful than beneficial, and that they they should be torn down, sub- t- torn down, subverted, yeah. whatever. Um, and for me, that's where I feel like a lot of the impulse really comes from. It and and I guess that's part of like the wokey holier than thou because it does feel like a real mission to me it doesn't feel like i'm so i mean, I mean i'm sure part of it is that i'm so cool and i'm on no the but fringes. the problem is that yeah. they don't match up their sincerity with with basic knowledge of the institutions that they want to bring down well that's so, definitely true no so i think <laughs> when you're putting putting passion when you're pairing passion with ignorance then you're not yeah. really taking it seriously and then i don't believe you that you're really about fixing a problem then just committing to your passions. So sure, your passions might be sincere. Of course, their passions aren't, I want to just cause harm. They think that by provoking the bourgeoisie, or even if they're not thinking specifically about being scandalous per se, they're just, they somehow believe that their protests will make the world a better place. If you are only following the things that are most exhilarating in pursuing these good ends and not doing the boring, dry work of actually getting familiarized with what the system is and, and, and what the reasons behind some of those guardrails are, then I can't take you seriously. That's not, that's not a serious way to fix a problem. That's probably the laziest way to fix a problem is to say, eh, let's, I, I don't want to actually get to know this system. I just want to bring it down and start over because when I build it, it will just be prettier and better. You know, like, oh, I don't like this uh, da Vinci because I, I guess I find some flaws in it in the age. Let me just tear it down and like I promise you that my version of the Mona Lisa will look better. <laughs> yeah. Like you need to learn how to br- build a bridge if you care about, about, about connecting two sides of a river. But, but if you're saying, ah, this bridge is a little rickety, so I'm just going to blow it up. This goes back to the French Revolution, right? I mean, it goes back to the beginnings of our, the beginnings of our political um, difference, uh, di- division between left and right. And that there is this utopian impulse on the left uh, that wants to tear things down. Uh, it's the Bolshevik Revolution. It's pretty much every revolution except the American one uh, that wants to tear tear down the current system and build a new utopia in its place. You could argue that that is fueling the radical element of the transgender cause in the sense that they want to remake 
the very basic building blocks of humanity, right? That they, they are guided by this belief that you can change your biological sex, which you, which you can't, you can't do that. Vanessa, were you starting to say something? No, I'll, go I'll, for I'll it. let you. I'll let you have the final question, then I want to ask about uh, Europe. Okay, Jamie, this is a question we like to ask all of our guests. Mm-hmm. So, what do you think are the biggest blind spots on the left, and the biggest blind spots on the right? Um, the biggest blind spots on the left, I would say. You want one. <laughs> one of the biggest blind spots. Um, I, mean, I think it would favorite. be. <laughs> um, no, I think the blind spot on the left is they are too quick. I don't know if this is a blind spot, but they're, and I would categorize myself as having been like this before um, in regards to Trump. I think they're too quick to ascribe racism to uh, political differences. Um, among certain elements of the left. I think that's a very prevalent blind spot. And the inability to see that people might hold good faith disagreements with you that are not based on bigotry in general, not just racism, bigotry, right? So like someone might disagree with aspects of transgender ideology and not have bigoted attitudes about transgender people, right? They have good faith disagreements about at what age children should be allowed to go through a gender transition, or they might not agree with allowing someone like Leah Thomas to compete in women's sports, and they're not a bigot for it, right? Or they might oppose racial preferences. They might agree with the Supreme Court decision two weeks ago and not be racist towards black people. I think there's just this, there's this Im- impulse to That's about lo- affirmative to leap. affirmative action in, in Harvard. Affirmative action, yeah. I, racial preferences in, in higher education. There's right. just this leap to ascribe bigotry to political differences. On the right, I think um, the blind spot, there are lots of blind spots on the right. Um, I do think that there is a blind spot with regard to the effects or the legacy of racism in this country. Um, And there's just a a desire to um, ignore the lasting impacts that slavery have in our society to this day, you know, over 160 years since the civil war. I think that's a, that's a big blind spot. Um, I also think there's a blind spot all around on both sides um, related to class. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that class. That's the American blind spot. Yeah. And that class is the um, really the most important factor in your life chances in America is your class, not your race, not your sexual orientation or your gender identity. It is, you know, are you born into a situation where you're, you have the economic resources to, to get an education and, to fall back on in cases of, you know, emergencies or problems. I think that's, that is ultimately what will decide your fate in American society. And I think that's what we don't, we'd rather talk about anything else, you know, anything else, but that. I agree. I agree. Yep. We agree on that. Um, Okay. So bonus content territory. 
If you want to enjoy the rest of our conversation with Jamie, join uncertain.substack.com. If not, you can just follow us wherever you get your podcasts or you can still become a free subscriber and get our regular newsletter. Please, if you want to support us, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and share us with your friends and enemies. Until next time, stay sane.